All right, all right. Good morning. 11 o'clock service. How's everybody doing this morning? Come on, I, I expect this to be the rowdy service. You got a little extra sleep. Come on. That second cup of coffee. Come on. Uh, no, we're, we're glad that you're here. And uh, before we get into the message, I do want to say if you're a guest with us, uh, we are honored you're, you're joining us here. Uh, whether you're here in Bethesda or you're online, we'd love to connect with you. And uh, we also love to pray with you. I know Christina mentioned um, we're sort of trying to keep the service as touchless as possible. That's why you can text the word catalyst to 94,000. If you have any way we can pray for you, we'd love to be praying for you uh, throughout the week. And uh, just be a church family here for you. Uh, but before we dive into the message, I'm excited this, this series, which we're going to dive into, uh, which we're beginning part one uh, of four parts today. Uh, I want to make mention for next week here in Bethesda, we're going to start something called Next Steps. And uh, what Next Steps is, is really if you want to find out more about how you can get connected here, how you can grow spiritually, you also have an opportunity. It's two steps. And the second step to uh, take a spiritual gifts assessment and also join one of our serving teams. That actually begins next uh, Sunday. Uh, after both services, we'll have it. Uh, it's, it's less than 30 minutes, so right after service, uh, we'll direct you. It's one of our rooms here on site uh, to do, go through next steps, and we would love to connect with you and really love to help you get as connected as you would like to in this season. Uh, and we'll be having more information for our online audience about what that will look like as well. But uh, let's dive in today. We are starting a brand new series called What Do You Do? Uh, and here's why it's called that. In fact, um, when, I, when I kind of first moved to the D.C. area, uh, one of the questions I would frequently get, maybe you've gotten this question. In fact, uh, kind of get the blood moving a little bit this morning, a little audience participation. If you have ever been asked this question, maybe the first time you meet somebody, has, I want you to lift up your hand. Have you ever been asked the question, what do you do? Lift your hand. Just a little, 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 get a little stretch in. Come on, if you've got to stretch a little bit, just mind your space. Uh, <laughs> But what do you do? I read an article. The number one question they found in the Washington, D.C. area, you are asked when you meet somebody, is what do you do? Now, part of that functionally because we spend so much time at work. In fact, they've shown over this pandemic, we are actually working more than we've ever worked before the pandemic. Um, and and uh, in fact, they say found that, that over the course of a lifetime, for the average American, is works 90,000 hours. Come on, you feel tired of hearing that. And here's the best part, ready for this. You know, here in the Washington area, uh, if you've been around, you know this. Um, our football team, not so great. Uh, basketball team, please pray for them. Uh, Capitals, bring back that magic once again. Come on. And Nationals, we feel like we've been going in the other direction than we should be. However, we are, according to research done, published in an article I read on CNN, we are, you ready for this? In the Washington, D.C. area, we are the national champions when it comes to being overworked. Come on, somebody. We won! <laughs> and we're tired. You know, it's like, we are the most overworked city in America. And that was actually before the pandemic, probably with, you know, technology and working from home, like many of you and many of you on the front lines. Uh, during this pandemic, we want to say thank you if you are one of those frontline workers um, work has, has been a big part of our life. And I don't know if you experienced this before in church, but growing up in church, I heard lots of messages on prayer and Bible reading and even relationships and finances. But I did not hear much on the area of my work life, on, on how do I approach my work as a follower of Christ? 
And here's the good part. It's actually God's word has a lot to say about how we are to work. So over the next four weeks, I want to invite you to come back for each of these. uh, Or if you're watching online, uh, tune in. Uh, If you're in the Washington area, we'd love to invite you to join us here in person at the Bethesda Hotel. But tune in. We're going to be unpacking different topics like like how, how do we discover our vocational purpose? Like what am I actually called to do in my work life? Like am I doing the thing that actually God uh, destined me to do? Or how do I work in such a way that makes an eternal purpose and not just earns a temporal dollar? Uh, we're going to talk through these topics and look to God's word for guidance. I believe it's going to give us some encouragement, some direction, and my hope to really be re-envisioned for how to make an eternal difference in our work life. But first, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. It's a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. I pray that as we open it today, that you would speak to us that my words, you would speak through my words and that we would posture our hearts and minds to receive from you in Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, we've entitled today's conversation or message, uh, work as worship, work as worship. Romans 12, I wanna show this scripture. It's the message translation. Typically, I don't read the message translation. I'm gonna tell you why, just for your own personal Bible study. Uh, The message translation is a modern paraphrase of scriptures. Um, I tend to lean more towards more of a literal translation in terms of the national, you know, I typically, when you hear me preach, it's usually new international version or English standard version. But the message translation, what I like about it, it was done by a pastor and theologian, Eugene Peterson wrote this. It kind of gives a modern twist to these ancient texts. And sometimes it just, the, the text kind of hits a little bit, uh, I think, more relevant to our culture. And let's read this one. This is Romans 12. Mind you, these are Paul's paraphrase of Paul's words, speaking to a culture much like the one we find ourselves in in Washington, uh, because it was a metropolitan area, Rome. And here he's speaking to them. And here's what he says. Uh, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, place it before God as an offering, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to the culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, developing well-formed maturity in you. I love that. So we're going to find out what does it mean to submit our work to God. And today's going to be an introduction. Uh, and we're going to read a lot of different scripture uh, to really give us a, a foundation and a context for uh, really God's vision for our, our work life. I'm going to share with you three points. Here's the first one that I, I want you to take hold on. That's this, is that work is from God. Work is from God. Genesis 1, 26, the creation account. God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our own likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock of all the wild animals, and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. If you ever wondered if it was God's will for you to eat meat, there you go. Come on, somebody. Uh, no, he loves vegans too. Um, but we are supposed to take dominion over the fish and the birds. Okay, we'll move on. Um, What does he say here? Let's make mankind in our own image. And what he's saying here in this moment, so I want you to catch this. We are made in the image of God and our God worked six days and rested on a seventh day. So you are made in the image of someone who works. Now, now mind you, if God who is omniscient and omnipresent takes a day off and we're gonna get to what that day off should look like in this series, uh, we should rest too. Because some of us in this room uh, don't nudge your neighbor you have no problem working. You don't do a good job resting. <laughs> we'll get to that. 
because work, if we're not careful, in this culture, work can easily become an idol. We can find our identity and our value from our work, which is not God's best for your life. Uh, because your identity is actually as a child of the Most High King, uh, and nothing can take that value from your life. Uh, no boss, no educator, no one. That's your value. Uh, you have immense value to him. But, but he, he, we were made in his image, therefore we were created to work. Now catch this, Genesis 2, verse 7 and 8. The Lord then formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils in the breath of life. And man became a living being. If you ever, if you ever uh, maybe your, your roommate or good friend or spouse get a little prideful, just remind them you were dust of the earth. Come on, right? It's a little reminder. You were formed out of the dust of the earth. Uh, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden. There he put man he had formed. Catch this. God created the garden that he put man in it. God had a work for you to do, then he created you. Before he ever created you, he had a purpose for you. Now, I was reminded of this back uh, uh, years ago. Steve Jobs, who uh, worked, created, well, one of the founders of Apple, created the iPhone, one of the minds behind that. And I would love to watch when Apple would reveal their products, uh, which we all know Apple is the chosen product of the Lord. Android is fallen. It is uh, wicked, uh, does not work, capable to viruses, uh, Apple is the premier product. That is not scriptural. Uh, that is my per- pure opinion. Let's get back to the Bible. Uh, so, uh, but what I would love is Steve Jobs, when he explained the iPhone, he was like, before he ever revealed it, he was like, in this product, you can stream music. In this product, you can send emails. In this product, you can check your favorite team score. In this product, you can send messages. And then he pulled out the iPhone. What does that tell you? He had a purpose in mind for the iPhone before he ever created the iPhone. If a finite man can have a purpose for something before he created it, how much more our God, whose ways are above our ways? I want you to lean into this. You cannot, because it's scriptural, you cannot discover your purpose outside of God. It would be like trying to figure out an iPhone without looking at all to what the creator had to say about it. In the same way, people lean into those Apple product reveals. Why? Because they don't know, what's this product about? How do I use it? We need to lean into God's spirit and God's word. God, what have you called me to? How have you created me? Genesis 1.27 says this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I want you to catch this. You were created for work, but you were also created in the image of a creator. You were created to be creative. You were actually created to be creative. Now, some of you think, Jeremy, I'm not creative. I'm an accountant. I don't do art or I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I don't, I don't write poetry, right? We, we tend to have a, have a contorted view of creativity. But check this. I, I, I saw even this week with my kids. I have, I have three children, seven, five, and, and, and two. And my seven-year-old, Hannah, she's always creating something. She'll create these, like, take these, like, shoe boxes or an Amazon box, and she'll create, like, a house out of it. I don't know how she does it. And she's always asking me, hey, can I use this? And she'll create a house in a village for all of her Barbie dolls. And, and then my, 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 my five-year-old Judah, he'll take his superheroes, and he'll have this galactic battle. Like, he's literally saving Earth from invasion. Even on the way to church this morning, in the backseat I heard, ah, and he's banging plastic together. 
Uh, and then my, my, my youngest, Abby, two years old, she loves baby dolls. She's always having a baby doll, has a little stroller. She's putting a bottle in her mouth and uh, putting it down for a nap. And she'll say, baby, gotta go night-night. And uh, the other day she had a friend over and she looked at him. Right, right when he walked in the door, she said, you to dada, I to mama. I said, wait, 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 I gotta talk to him first, okay? Let's slow your roll. I know you're two, <laughs> but talk to me. But kids are naturally creative, right? Like, you don't have to teach a kid to be creative. Like, they're naturally. But as adults, you have to teach us to be creative, right? So what happens? In fact, NASA, it's really interesting. They did a longitudinal study over 20 years of creativity. And they found an average four- and five-year-old, the average four- and five-year-old, 98% of your average four- and five-year-olds rated as a creative genius, then it catches five years later, it get, it, it, that, that's encouraging, but it doesn't get encouraging. <laughs> so 10, year, 10 years old, only 30% of the same group. 15-year-olds, only 12%. And here's the best one for most of us in this room. Adults, only 2% of us are creative geniuses. How does 96% of us get less creative over the... Here's what I believe. Listen. When you, when you see somebody use a creative method of teaching, when you, 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 you hear a song that was created by someone, when you see a painting or a portrait, or you see somebody create a new product or create a new way to serve people or new business methods, we are drawn to it. Why? Because you were created in the image of a creator who creates, and you were created to create. Therefore, we are drawn to creativity because it reflects the nature of our God on the earth. And I believe the reason we lose our creativity is because the enemy is actively working because he knows if I can get you and me to compare ourselves amongst ourselves and I become less authentic and less creative, then I no longer reflect the very nature of the God in whom I was created in the image of. Because he knows that when we're creative, we reflect the creator and we draw people ultimately to God. Now, I am preaching far better than you all responding. That's okay, though. 915 was better. I'm just saying, I'm just speaking truth. You were created to be creative. Can I give you a challenge this week? This might be uncomfortable for some of you, but I want to encourage you to take this step. I tried to do this personally. Sit down and in your prayer time with the Lord, ask him for creative ideas to solve problems at work. Ask him for creative ideas to maybe bring to your leadership team, maybe to bring to your organization. Ask him creative ideas, come on, if you're a stay-at-home parent, to, to parent. I'm telling you, it's powerful when you dream with God. You might be thinking, Jeremy, that's great. You're a pastor. I'm a lawyer. You're a pastor. I'm a student. You're, you're a pastor. I'm in business, or I work for government, or I'm a physician. Look at Scripture. Our Savior, Jesus, was a carpenter marketplace. Paul wrote two-thirds of the books in the New Testament. Wasn't a full-time pastor. A tent maker marketplace. Peter, leader of the church, fisherman marketplace. David. The only person that has more scripture written about him than David is Jesus, king, not pastor. Esther, in government. Are you following me, church? Yeah. All of these people were fulfilling God's call in the marketplace. 45 of Jesus' 52 parables were about the marketplace. 122 of his 133 public appearances were in the marketplace. 
You are a minister in the marketplace. You go to work, you're going on mission for Jesus. You're selling houses as a real estate agent, you're on mission for Jesus. You're a nanny for children, you're a mission for Jesus. You go to your graduate school classroom, you're on mission for Jesus. You go into your business, you're on mission for Jesus. The early church in Acts 2 in the upper room, when the Holy Spirit descended, the upper room was right smack dab in the middle of the marketplace. It wasn't some far off distant land, a little Christian huddle. They were right in the midst of it. The church was never meant to vacate the marketplace and let's just have a huddle. Gathering for worship, this is what the church has been doing for thousands of years. This is why we do it. But after we gather for worship on Sunday, we go out and be ministers on Monday. You are called to full-time ministry and whatever you are. Just as I'm in full-time ministry as a pastor, you're in full-time ministry at fill-in-the-blank, whatever you do. We're going to get more what that means. You were created to co-create. But I want you to catch this. In verse 28, he says, God bless them. It said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. That word subdue means to steward. So you're called to steward creation. So God has entrusted you with creation, a, a part of creation, which, which, which means the earth itself and our natural resources, but it extends beyond that into human resources, into other types of resources. And be fruitful and increase. That's not just a um, have children Bible verse, by the way. Um, that's part of that, but it's more than that. To be fruitful and increase is that whatever God's placed in your hand that you would actually care for it and tend to it and develop its potential. Uh, Genesis 2.15 says that the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. That word work can be better translated to serve it. And to take care of it means to tend to it, to preserve it. And I love this. One of the definitions in the original language is to develop its potential. That God has entrusted you with a part of his creation in your office place as an accountant, in the classroom, as a teacher, on the field, in construction, at home, as a parent. God has entrusted you with a piece of his creation. And he said, now I want you to serve and I want you to develop its potential. Catch this. He's not saying, listen, nowhere in this creation story, I want you to catch this. Does God say the sole purpose of your job is to boost your resume? It's to make lots of money. It's to be promoted or the common American gospel, or to end up in your dream career. Those things aren't bad. They just aren't the main thing. Are you following me? Because one day you're going to stand before God, and you're going to have to give an account for your life. And he's not going to ask you, let me see your CV. Oh, you got two masters. It's impressive. You got promoted three times in your first five years. Great job. Again, please hear me. That's not bad. It's not the main thing. Are you following me? You use that promotion, those degrees, steward them to ultimately make eternal impact. We're going to get to what that looks like. So, so, but, but we're called to, to care for, to serve creation. I love what Tim Keller says. So whether you're splicing a gene or doing brain surgery or collecting the rubbish or painting a picture, our work further develops, maintains, and repairs the fabric of our world. In this way, we connect our work to God's work. If this topic interests you, which I love this topic personally, Tim Keller, he's a pastor at a New York City. He wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor, Connecting God's Work to Your Work. Phenomenal book. I recommend it. It's a great foundational book 
uh, on this topic. There's lots of books I could recommend, but that's the first one I would say to pick up if you want to read more about what this looks like. But, but let me just look at this. So develop the potential. My daughter Hannah, the other uh, couple months ago, she brought home this uh, plant. And, uh, well, she brought home dirt and seed. She was given direction, plant the seed, water it, put it in sunlight, all of that, and kind of tend to it, care for it, serve it. And, and what was cool is that, you know, several weeks later, these little, like, uh, green started pushing through the dirt. And she was real excited because she saw, wow, I, I was given seed and dirt. And, and as, I, as, I, as I cared for it, as I tended to it, it developed into potential, right? And, and oftentimes, I want you to go with me, because some of you might be thinking to yourself, Jeremy, this is a great, this is a great message, but I feel like maybe, maybe the work that I'm in, it's not real. Um, maybe you don't like it. Maybe you don't feel like it. it doesn't feel like ministry or it doesn't feel like the way that I'm talking. It's because that time, often with our work, again, I want to take this whole idea of caring for it and tending it. It's almost this gardening example, which he uses in the garden. So, so follow with me. It's because you've been entrusted with a seed. See, this is a lily seed. And you've been entrusted with a seed. And you're wondering to yourself, like, okay, this is all I've been entrusted with. To care for, to tend, to nurture, to serve, to develop the potential. So that this is a lily. It can ultimately become this. When you plant that seed and you water that seed and you bring sunlight to that seed, that seed becomes this. Those children you teach are seeds. Those clients you serve are seeds. The coworkers around you, seeds. The people that you serve through your work in the government, the people who will benefit from your research at NIH, the patients you serve at Walter Reed, those are seeds. And God is saying, I have entrusted you with a small part of my creation so you would steward it, serve it, develop its potential so that they would fully realize their full potential. This is what you were created for, church, to tend and to care to God's resources. And again, natural resources, but his most precious resource are people around you. What does it look like for you to begin to serve your coworkers, your clients, your teachers, or your students, or maybe you are a student, your teachers and your other students around you? What does it look like for you to do that? Here's number two. So we work is from God. Number two is that work is for God. Work is for God. The word for work in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, which appears 141 times, is the word avadah. Avadah. Uh, and that word work, here's the, here's the incredible thing. The word work in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, avadah, and actually it's two meanings, which we have two different words for in the English language. Those two words are work and worship. If you love to do a little bit of study, go home, look it up. Some scriptures that use the English word work, some in English use the word worship. Why? Because when the scriptures were written, there was no division between the sacred and the secular. You know the word secular and the sacred divide is nowhere found in scripture. Nowhere. In fact, just the opposite, Psalms 124 said, the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. You know what that means? Like right now, what we're doing is sacred. 
Right now, when you go feed your kids after church, sacred. When you go to the office or Zoom, get on your Zoom call tomorrow morning, sacred. That everything is the Lord's. And just to give some perspective, if, if, you're, if this is a new concept for you, that the kingdom of God and God's authority, you know, we call him King Jesus. He's the King of Kings. Do you know his domain is not limited to an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning or within the four walls of a church, but his kingdom knows no end. That every part of this earth is under the domain of King Jesus. Everything is sacred. There's nothing secular unless we make it secular. The word secular, it literally means without God. God's original intention was all of your work would be sacred. Only we as humans can, 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 can pervert it and make it secular and remove God from it. And we can do that when we work in immoral ways, when we cheat, when we lie, even a little bit of a lie, when we steal, when we're dishonest. That makes work that was intended to be sacred. It makes it secular. That's why we as followers of Christ, we don't look to the cultural norms of our office place or even the Washington, D.C. area or even America for how we should work. We look to God's word. It may be okay to gossip in your workplace, but my Bible says we're not supposed to use our words to tear down or slander, but only to build up. It may be normal to kind of steal some time from your boss and go into work late because he doesn't know it or she doesn't know it, but... Stealing is dishonest, and as people of the kingdom of God, we're called to live honest. It's getting very quiet in this church. Are you following me? We're called to live different, church. Work is worship. Avadah. It's worship. This is worship. That's also worship. And they both have their places. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul says the church at Corinth, which, mind you, Corinth was a very immoral culture. It makes the Washington, D.C. area, it makes America look like a nursery in terms of morality. Like, it was just very, very opposed to the ways of God. I won't go into details, but if you ever look up a study of Corinth, it's, it's, like, it's like Rome, even worse than Rome back, back then. It says, Paul says, because what happened, let me give context. The, the Corinthian church, they were coming to faith in Christ. And again, lots of immorality. So they were like, okay, how do we now, like, now that we're Christians, do we all go and like huddle up and never go into the world again? Like, can I finally leave that job I never liked? You know what I'm saying? Like, and Paul says, no. Here's what he says. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned that to them. So in your office, in your neighborhood, as a teacher, as a parent, as an accountant, whatever it is, just as God has called them. Again, referring to the divine call, work is from God. So he's saying, I want you to stay right where you are. Here's a question you can ask yourself. If you ever wondered, okay, Jeremy, I'm hearing this. Okay, but I, I sell computers. How do I sell office products as a follower of Jesus? Or Jeremy, I teach preschoolers who, when I get done in the day, I, I, I don't want to do nice things to them, and I need Jesus. Come on, somebody. <laughs> or or I, here's a question to ask yourself about your job. If Jesus was to teach those preschoolers today, how would he teach them? If Jesus was to sell those office products, how would he sell them? If Jesus was to be a physician working with cancer patients like you, how would he serve them? Ask yourself that question and write it down. That should inform how you work. I'm not saying you throw out all the things you learned in medical school. You're going to need that too when you're practicing medicine. 
What I'm saying is the general posture of your heart is informed by the ways of, of God. Charles Spurgeon, a theologian, said this, to a man who lives under God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment. It is a vestment to him. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of priesthood. That refers to the scripture that says the priesthood of all believers. Do you know you're a priest? We're all priests in the New Testament. We're priesthood of all believers. I won't go into in detail, but he says, he says now to draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred, like church is sacred, prayer sacred, Bible reading sacred, and then this is secular. My work is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus and the spirit of the gospel. Diametrically opposed. Remind me of a friend of mine some years ago. He was um, real active in the church I was a part of, and he was uh, an usher, and his wife was on the kids' team. Uh, they were part of the prayer ministry. Just real, real invested, real involved, great family. And um, he was processing whether he was called to be a pastor. So he met with me to, to pray and to process after our conversation, he said, you know, I'm gonna go, we're going to go and we're going to spend some time to pray about this. He came back to me. He was, an air, uh, he was a, a uh, pilot in the Air Force. So he came back to me and he said, Jeremy, after prayer and consideration, um, we're still here in this church and invested and we'll serve. But I feel like God's called me to fly planes in the Air Force. And here's the incredible thing. He has flown dignitaries, foreign dignitaries, national leaders of the highest levels all over this world. And he would tell me that before my flight, and sometimes while we're up in the air, I'm praying over them. I'm praying for them. What did, listen, he understood, hey, the military may assign me, but God in heaven called me. So I have a job to do, but I'm a minister of the most high God. Now, I didn't mean he brought in a Bible and started preaching because he couldn't do that in his role. But he could pray for him. And God opened up, opened up doors for conversations. You're a minister. Listen, when you turn your work into worship, God turns your job into joy. Because you begin to understand, oh, I'm not here for him. I'm not just here for her. I'm working for him. Paul said in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with your heart, whereas working for the Lord with all of your heart, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance that is from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Catch what Paul is saying here. So what does it mean to work as worship? Do it with all your heart. So even if your work culture is to give half the effort, you give it full effort. Why? Because you're working for God, not for your organizational culture. You work with a sense of excellence. Here's what excellence is. Excellence is not perfection. Excellence is on the very best you can with what you have. Can I tell you, do you want to know how, how and you, you see it all over culture, how a lot of times you'll see followers of Christ earn influence. You know, you know the, the language of influence in our culture is excellence, is excellence. I was reminded of a story I heard. Horst Schultz, he's the founder and the COO of Ritz-Carlton. Uh, which is a, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Carlton, many of you are familiar with it. It is kind of the standard of hospitality in the hotel industry. Books have been written about them. He has actually written a book called Excellence Wins. Here's the awesome thing about Horst Schultz. Here's why I love him. He's a follower of Christ. And when he founded Ritz Carlton, he has a motto that every staff member, I had one time a service where I mentioned this, and a guy came and told me that everything I said, he's like, you're exactly right. 
They have a motto that we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That's their staff motto. So that influences everything we do. Our identity is as, 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 or as ladies and gentlemen, and we also serve ladies and gentlemen. We don't treat people as common. What inspired Horst Schultz to have that motto, you know what inspired him? The second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. That inspired, his faith inspired the way they do hospitality. And now there's books written about them. There's courses saying, do what Rich Carlton does. And do you know want to know why Horst Schultz has a microphone in his hand and people saying, write a book? Because he was excellent. And do you know what he does when he goes to business conferences? He's able to talk about his Jesus. What was your influence, Horst Schultz? Oh, it's not me. It was this man named Jesus who said to love your neighbor as yourself. Excellence is attractive. But also, here's how also you work with all your heart. Here's another application. It's to work with integrity. To work with integrity. To have an integrated life. Meaning, come on, you, we've all met that person. You, you ever had an interaction? If they're with you, don't look at them. Okay? But they, they went to church on Sunday. Or maybe they tuned into church on Sunday. They're worship. But then you saw them on Monday, and you were like, did you even hear anything you heard on Sunday? <laughs> Are you following the same Jesus you said you follow on Sunday? You ever met a person like that? You're like, there's a disconnect here. It's a, it's a disintegrated life. That's what, that's what integrity means. You're the same at work as you are at home, as you are at church, as you are when no one's looking. Integrity is attractive. In fact, the opposite, we hear stories all the time, right? of even Christian leaders. See, there's a lack of integrity in their life. Why? Because we all long for integrity. And, and, and Horst Schultz, actually, so Marriott, which actually Rich Carlton and Marriott are both based here in Bethesda, which if you work for them, we love you. Um, if any of this is wrong, come tell me. Just not now. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> when Marriott bought out Ritz Carlton, he told the leadership team at Marriott because they wanted to put pornography in the rooms at the Ritz Carlton. And at the time that happened, he pushed back. He, he risked his job for his character. I, want, I'll hear, I hope you hear the heart of this. I'm not saying tomorrow you go and, and all of a sudden, if your workplace is full of immorality, lying, cheating, stealing, if they lie to their, their, their clients, if they, if they cheat on the books, I'm not saying you go in tomorrow and blow up your boss, all right? <laughs> Don't say, good morning, let's chat, right? <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but Horst Schultz was felt convicted by God's spirit on this matter. But here's what I am saying. If you're saying, Jeremy, is it worth it to risk your job for the sake of living a, a, a life in alignment with God's word? I think he's worth it. I know that's heavy, but I think he's worth it. And he is ultimately your provider, not your employer. And he takes care of his children. Again, I'm not, don't go in tomorrow and say, my pastor told me, so come on. I'm blowing y'all up. God's got me. And then don't call me on Tuesday saying, I did this, help me. All right? <laughs> I'm not saying that. Follow the, the Holy Spirit, God's word. But, 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 but be willing to do that. Uh, I'll share this. When I was years ago, I was working as a psychologist. Before I became a pastor, I was a psychologist, mainly working with teenagers, middle school, middle school students. Um, that's why I don't have any hair. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
Uh, pray for our middle school student ministry happening right now. We love middle schoolers. Uh, but I worked as a psychologist. I, I got offered a job at this, at this school. And it was going to be a dream job. It was this a unique school um, that served students that kind of like in the school system were kind of discounted. They had, they had kind of messed up and they were kind of pushed out into this alternative education. And I applied for this job. And I went in. And it was like everything at that time I was like dreaming of. Like I had a great relationship with the leader. He was going to give me lots of flexibility. I met some of the students. I was really fired up. I was inspired. I was like, man, we can really make a difference in the kids' lives. Everything was going great. I was there for about three or four hours. Very end of it, I, I go have a meeting with the person who I'd work very closely with. We would kind of be a tag team. And we're just having conversations. She's like, she said, I am so glad that you are, are coming on staff here. She said, since the guy who had your job before left, I have not had a work husband in months. Now, I was naive. I had no idea what a work husband was. So I was like, excuse me, a work husband? (laughs) I was like, I'm a husband to one woman, and if she knew you said that, she'd be up in here throwing some bows right now, okay? She's sweet and she's calm, but she works out because she's ready to throw some bows if need be, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) But in that moment, it kind of shook me because I was like, I'm going to work very close to this woman. And I just felt like in that moment, honestly, it was really disappointing because I was like, man, everything was like so perfect until I got married at work. You know what I'm saying? Like, wasn't what I was signing up for. It just felt uncomfortable. I left that meeting and I felt the spirit of God just in my heart. I was like, no, this isn't it. And you ever had that moment where you feel like God was saying no, but you try to rationalize with him? He's like, God, maybe she meant like, like we're just going to work closely. Like maybe not what she meant, you know. But I, I knew God was telling me no. So I turned the job down. Here's an incredible thing, though. And a few months later, I got offered a position at a church. Kind of felt a little bit out of left field at the time. I was involved with this church. But to be in a youth pastor. And that step is a step that led me be here today. So here's what I'm saying. Even in moments where you feel like you're having to lay down a dream job or a dream aspiration, if you feel like it's God, can I encourage you today? Do it. He takes care of his kids. He's a good father. He actually wants better for you than you want yourself. I know it's hard to believe. He actually wants more for you in your work life than you want for yourself. Let's trust him. Work as worship. Work with excellence. Work with integrity. Here's point number three, last one, and that's to work with God. So we work is from God. Work is for God. And then lastly is that we work with God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are God's co-workers in God's service. We are his co-workers. And he says, uh, he goes on to say, in God's field, referring again to that, that kind of gardening mentality that we're called to serve Speaking of Corinthians, Corinth, which aligns with Matthew 23, 11, where Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. In fact, he said another time, don't be like the Gentiles who lord their authority over people. Don't be like the Pharisees who flaunt their education, who flaunt their uh, uh, elite status. Come on, but, but be like a servant. A modern translation is don't be that person who puts all 12 of your degree letters behind your name on your personal email. Come on, somebody. If you do that, we love you. But don't do that. It's personal, okay? Just, it's still too much. 
work if you need it, fine. Here's why I say that. I used to do that. When I was a psychologist, I had like seven letters behind my name. I had several degrees, several certifications. So I'd be like, Jeremy Burroughs, comma, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, you know? Then I always realized, that's prideful. And this is my personal Gmail. Okay, I'll move on. Sorry. Be a servant. Be, be who you are. Be comfortable with who you are. You don't need those. Those letters don't define who you are. I love what Tim Keller says. Work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general, people in particular, thrive and flourish. I'm going to close this story uh, of working in a posture of service. There's a man named William Wilberforce. Uh, some of you may know who he is. Late 1700s and early 1800s, he was a member of the British Parliament. Uh, had a lot of success at a young age. He was known for his ambition, known for his uh, eloquence, known for his way to get the job done in politics. But in 1784, William Wilberforce had a life-changing situation. He read a book uh, called um, uh, Commitment to a, to a Holy and Devout Life. And through that book, he got a revelation of who God was. And he surrendered his life to Christ. But then he felt perplexed because he had, he had sort of, he sort of like worked according to the cultural norms. You know, politicking and at times not telling the whole truth and doing some immoral things. So he felt this, he felt this, this kind of tension. I now follow Jesus. How do I keep serving my nation? Do I need to choose to serve Jesus or to serve the nation? So he met with John Newton. Who John Newton was the author of Amazing Grace. Um, and he met with him and he asked him, John, like, what do I do? Like, do I leave parliament to just serve Jesus? Do I go be a missionary? Do I go do all that? Here's what John said to him. I love this. He says, God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. Who knows that before such a time as this, God has brought you into public life, has a purpose for you. So Wilberforce clicked. Oh, I can be in ministry in parliament. I could be on mission for Jesus in parliament. So he began to change his behavior. He began to excuse himself from some of the immoral behaviors that were common at that time. He began to live a life of integrity. He continued to be excellent at what he did. And then he was faced with, 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 this, with this tension moment that has forever changed the country of Great Britain and forever actually changed. Some say it spawned the change here in America. Here was the change in the late 1700s. Britain had a slave trade that was massive. It was in that day's currency, $17 million. Lots of political power around it. Lots of money exchanged. And when he was confronted with that, he just felt the spirit of God that was like, this is not right. Not only is it not right, slave trade was demonic. And in that moment, Wilberforce began to stand up. The only voice in parliament. Every year, he brought a bill to parliament to end the slave trade. For 25 years, they voted it down. Imagine 25 years. Like, if I was, well, I'd be questioning, God, are you sure <laughs> I'm supposed to be in parliament? These jokers are crazy. <laughs> like, 25 years, 
Finally, in 1807, they vote the bill to pass. This shows you how, how just corrupted it was. It took 26 more years for it actually become law and the slave trade to abolish in Britain. Some slay that the abolishment of the slave trade in Britain catapulted the end of it in America. So Wilberforce, at the end of his, at the end of his life, is being asked, what was your hope? What was your intention with, my, with your life? And living on mission for Christ as parliament. He said, my hope that with my life would inspire others to follow Christ and that those who follow Christ would be inspired to change the fabric of a nation. May that be said of us, church. In fact, I believe from God's word and by leadership of his spirit that actually God is commissioning all of us to work in such a way as worship with integrity and excellence and service that it would change the fabric of our world in such a way that it would reflect the character and the nature of Christ and inspire generations to come like Wilberforce to do the same. Listen, when your work becomes worship, we change the world for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You have commissioned us. You have called us. Those places that we will go for some later this afternoon, for others tomorrow morning. God, we, you've commissioned us in those places, with those people, in that classroom. God, I pray that you, you, you would renew a sense of call in ministry in our work life and that we like Wilberforce in our own way God would change the fabric of our world for the glory of God so people would come to faith in Jesus and know true hope and God that those who know Christ would be inspired to do the same church with heads bowed and eyes closed I'm going to pray with a group of individuals if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ You've never received the free gift of salvation. The Bible says the penalty of our sin, of our mistakes, which we've all made, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. It's a free gift. The Bible says we believe it in our heart. We confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will be saved. That means you'll have eternal life with him forever. And you'll have his peace here on earth. You'll have a fresh purpose from God. Or maybe you're here and you once made that decision, but you drifted away from God. And you sense in your spirit, God is, is leading you to, to, today to make a, make a recommitment. It's kind of a demarcation. God, I'm following you once again. God, I commit my life to you once again. If you are either of those two groups with no one looking around, heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to pray with you. I believe there's something powerful of a physical response to a, to a personal heart decision. If you are either of those groups, I want you to lift your hand up on the count of three, just high enough and long enough just so I can see it. Ready? One, two, three. Just lift it up. That's me. That's me. Awesome. 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 That's great. That's great. A few more moments. People say, Jeremy, pray. You can just put it up and put it back down. You can just put it up and put it back down. That's me, Jeremy. That's great. I want you to pray this prayer with me, church. Everybody together with those making this decision here in Bethesda and online. Let's just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross 
and giving your life for me. I believe you rose again. I confess you're Lord of my life. God, I ask you to forgive my sin. I turn from my ways and I ask that you lead me and you guide me in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hey, church, come on, put our hands together for all of those who made a decision today. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Um, you can text the word CATALYST to 94000, uh, whether you're tuning in online or here in Bethesda. We'd love to know about it to just help you with your next steps. If you're here in Bethesda, we have a, a book called Following Jesus and a Bible. We'd love to put it in your hands. or right outside here at the guest services table. We'd love to put it in your hands. We're just so excited uh, for this decision and for what God has in store for your life. Awesome, church. This is the time in our service where we transition back into a time